Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Midpoint. My guest today is Brian O'Driscoll, a former international rugby union player and now excellent broadcaster. He's Ireland's all-time record try scorer and cap holder with 46 tries and 133 test appearances. In short, he's rugby royalty. He's also in the International Rugby Hall of Fame. He won eight caps, the British and Irish Lions as well, making him an IRB Player of the Year nominee. And he led Ireland to their first Grand Slam in 61 years. I think the acronym GO might well be applied to Brian. In retirement, he's become one of the game's most authoritative voices as a commentator and pundit for BT and ITV. And he has a production company and other business interests. And he's one half of Ireland's favourite couples, married to the Irish actress Amy Huberman, who he's got three children with, Nancy, Billy and Ted, the latter being a proper lockdown baby. Can't wait to hear about that. I'm fascinated about how athletes transition from gods to mortals and how he's dealing with the aches and pains of a body that spent the best part of 20 years being pummeled and pushed to its max. Today's episode is kindly sponsored by Solgar, who want us all to remember that even in the summer months, it can be hard to get the vitamin D we need from the sun and our diet to feel at our very best. Solgar has a wide range of different strengths and formats to suit all seasons, skin tones and lifestyles. Okay, let's chat to Brian. Uh, Brian, how are you? How do I find you today? Be well, thank you. Really well. Um, yeah, I'm having a bit of a kind of quiet down week this week. So like a little bit of antsiness because I'm not busy, but, the, you know, the grass <laughs> is always greener, isn't it? When you're when you're too busy, you know, you're panicky when you're quiet. It's like, oh, my gosh, come on, I got to do something. So, yeah, enjoying some family time. Yeah, that's it's funny that, isn't it? During lockdown, the first period of lockdown, I tried to enjoy it. And then when I started to kind of get a little bit antsy about being too quiet, actually, all the sport came back and I started to get really busy. And I've probably been busy ever since. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's been it's been kind of everything's rolled into one into the other. At the moment, I'm in such a busy period that I'm having that kind of whole craving that space again. We we can never really be happy, can we? No, (laughs) no. Whichever period we're in. it's It's a really weird one because... You know, we're all, you know, made up different ways, but but ultimately you look over the hill or you look over your next door neighbors and inevitably there's things that you would envy. You could be have the most magnificent house in the world, but there's something in your neighbor's garden that you think, wow, they've really nailed that. So <laughs> I think, uh, you know, human instinct is to is to just always trying to refine what way you've done things or try and improve or how could it be a little bit better. And I wish that I could look back and think, wow, that's amazing or that's been great and just be content with it. But there's something built in a lot of us that is like, okay, how can we just make it that tiny little bit better or what can we do to modify things to enhance life? So I don't know, it's, we're a complex being. We are. And it's funny you've jumped straight into this because I, I didn't think I'd start talking about this. But actually, that, that is all about the, the kind of transition from being, which I really wanted to talk to you about, because I haven't had this conversation with anybody on our episodes yet, from being a top class sports person, from being a god, you know, from being revered, from being idolised and applauded with 100,000 people to being 
a bloke who, yes, you've still got all those accolades, but then you have to kind of adjust to kind of being a regular person, if you like, and and deal with regular things every day and not have people sort all that stuff out for you. And that happens earlier than midlife, but it is kind of like a midlife transition, isn't it? Yeah, no, 100% is. It's really weird that that first retirement, because the way I look back on it, you know, there's a huge relief that comes from retiring because from my point of view, got out of the game relatively unscathed, you know, no long-term injuries to carry. I felt very lucky to have 15 years of playing international, getting to call it on my own terms. And the body was on the wane too. So to get to go before I was pushed was really important to me. Uh, and the push was coming, trust me. Um, so <laughs> it's it was, you know, the first year after you're done is very exciting. You're trying out, you're taking advantage of all the invites and you're going, wants to the, you. you're going to the parties, you're hot, you're so hot for that year. <laughs> and, then, um, and then you do it all. Just, can I ask you, just during that year, did you know that that was temporary? Or at that point, did you think, gosh, I mean, this is like, wow, what have I been missing out on? Or were you taking advantage of it thinking, this is surely going to dry up at some point? Yeah, no, I think, you're, I think the, there's a, the realism that is that it's, it's not going to go on indefinitely. I think you think, well, maybe I'll get a second or a third year out of it. <laughs> but, but I think you do know, you know, enjoy it while it lasts. But for me, what, what really dawned on me was when you go through that year of firsts, and then you come back to where you started with your retirement and you look back and you think, oh, that was so cool. And I got to go to Wimbledon and I got to go to things that I'd never been to before. And when you say you went to Wimbledon, sorry yeah. to interrupt, you did the middle Saturday thing, didn't yeah. you? You went yeah. and where, where everybody has to stand up and all that. I mean, that I always watch that thinking, oh, car, Kenny, why don't you get more cats? <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is really cool. It's that one where you're introduced and you're not entirely sure how long you should stand up and wave for. And less is more in that case, I have learned, you know, less is more. Who so. stood up before you that day and who stood up after you? Do you remember who was in the box? I think it was... It was one of the cricketers. But as well, the, the thing is, you know, make sure you're at the back of the box where you can see everybody. So uh, right. thankfully, I'm, was, I'm, I'm a back of the box sort of name. You know, you're not front and center. <laughs> so that was OK. So make sure you, you're not the last guy to be still standing, waving to the crowd and everyone else behind you <laughs> sat down. Um, but, but when you do all of that year, you, you know, it's, fan, it's fantastic. But the reality is international rugby is better than that. Mm. And... Then year two and three and four, it kind of sets in a little bit more. And it is true, the further you get away from the game, the easier it is. But there's really a huge adjusting period. And, and I was lucky that I had lots of opportunity and I was doing some things I wanted to get into and exploring some you know, kind of new work experiences. But it's, you, you, you can't help but compare it to what you did previously and what you felt you were very good and comfortable with. And then all these new things that you're trying, you're just not quite as good. And <laughs> trying to be at a world-class level doing them isn't so easy because, you know, talent and experience are needed and you don't have any experience. You're up against people who've been doing that for a while as well. and you're That's the reality of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you've got, you know, you're on a steep learning curve. So I... Yeah, I found I found those those few years after the first one the most challenging. And I think as well, you know, you've two young kids at that stage and you're kind of you're just trying to keep your head above water with them and then you're trying to rediscover yourself. Do you know what I found? I found 
there's a vulnerability to being out on your own. You know, there's a safety net being involved with teams. And, and, and I've been one club team, my province for my whole career, the national team likewise, and then I dipped in and out of the Lions. So ultimately I only knew three teams. And then one day you are gone. And you know, the lads say that, that it wasn't around in, in, when I finished, you know, the, the big WhatsApp groups. But now the hardest part is leaving the WhatsApp group because it's, it's so definitive. It's like you're there it's one day, you're part of it, and then you have to leave before you're kicked out too. So I found a real vulnerability to my words where, mm-hmm. where otherwise you kind of get cast amongst your peers. But also mm-hmm. you're trying to discover your own voice as well because certainly as captain of any team, you, you've got to speak for all of the, the personnel involved, not just for yourself. And then all of a sudden you can be who you want to be. So it's trying to find out what that is as well. God, there's so much to, to drum, drum into there and to drill into there. One of the things is that you said early on was the buzz and nothing that happened in that year afterwards was ever as good as being a professional rugby player. And that that part of a sportsman's life, we, I remember finding myself once in, in a pub with Kenny chatting to Brian Moore was in there, bizarrely, and a friend, a mutual friend of ours. And the debate was, was signing a massive deal ever going to give you the same highs as playing rugby for your country? And at this point, Brian had been in the corporate world for a long time and he said categorically, you know, no way, because this guy was trying to kind of you know, defend that. And Kenny was quite early on in his retirement, if, if still playing even. And, and I could see his face kind of that almost hadn't dawned on him that, you know, maybe the best thing I'm ever going to do has already happened in my life. Mm. And of course, that's not the case when it comes to your kids and your family. But that is the reality, isn't it? That that level of kind of high octane, adrenaline fueled achievement is probably never going to come across your path in quite the same way again. Uh, yeah. And I, I guess if you look on it that way, it's a bit of a grim prospect that you, I remember getting some advice from a fitness coach um, and, and him saying, even when I was coming to the, to the kind of winter of my career, he always said, make sure that you're the best years of your life are always the ones that are ahead of you. And that's always stuck with me rather than dwelling on what, done, what you'd done mm. before, what you might have achieved, but always feeling as though you could make it a little bit better. So I've, I've never really allowed myself think, wow, no. that's, I've peaked. Well, that would be dangerous, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, you're, you're on a yeah. slippery slope for the rest, for the next 30 years. So I, <laughs> um, so I, I guess you want to get different kind of unilateral highs, you know, be it whatever you get into. And I get it from from doing a good production day on TV, if you feel as though you nail a good day, there's, there's satisfaction. Mm. It's not playing in front of 90,000. But also, <laughs> I, I find when you stop chasing the highs to the same degree, you've, you can find satisfaction in some simpler things. And, and I really genuinely believe that with, with, my, you know, with my family and with you know, one or two of the businesses that I'm involved in, when you do have good days, it's important to, mm. to not compare them to beating the best teams in the world, they can, you can treat them in isolation and mm-hmm. treat them as unique to that circumstance um, and still feel a high from it. You don't always have to go, well, you know, it's only a six out of 10 compared to, you know, beating England <laughs> in Twickenham. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that's but that process either has to, you have to kind of go through it. It's going to take time. It's not going to happen in one day, is it? Or you're going to need some kind of mentoring to get through it. And I know that's a growth industry, isn't it? For, for professional sports people who are making that transition, because especially rugby, very few rugby players leave the game 
with enough cash in the bank to never work again, mm. right? Or to just do interesting startups or, you know, ha- just travel around the world living in their various homes. I'm thinking of, you know, football as an American franchise sport. So so that that process of, of moving into real life, you, I just don't think you can expect people to be able to do it kind of on their own without some... No, and, and no, there is a real need to prepare players for that next phase. And I think... The RPA in England are, are pretty good at it. We've gotten a little bit better rugby players. Ireland, our, our union here of, of... And it's maybe not necessarily primed for the, that high tier level of players. It's for, the, it's, it's for everyone below. But yet it's, you, you still have to put yourself in that bracket because you're still going to feel the same experiences as anyone leaving the game. But I, I think it's really important that you speak and prepare players for what it's going to be like. I, I went and sought loads of advice in advance of doing it to, to understand what was coming down the line. Because mm. if you feel one day, and I tried to you know, get some businesses to make that integration a little bit easier, a couple of business interests set up. So there was some sort of smooth transition. It's still a very hard thing to do as a player mm. where you're so focused, so selfish on get, getting the most out of your talent to then mm. give 20, 30, 40% of your time to something else. It's really hard to, to hedge your bets on both. And the emotion as well, Brian, you know, the drive and determination that it takes to keep achieving like that, right? It, it just, you just don't need that level of drive and determination to get up in the morning and, and unpack the dishwasher, yeah. right? Or even, or even take the kids for a walk. It's a completely different emotional experience. It is, it is. But you know what, as, as well, Gary, and as, this is a really interesting one. I don't think I've kind of said this openly before, but, but when you leave the game, you know, you... You're, you're put on a pedestal by the supporters and you've had, you know, a number of years of that. Home is your sanctity. You can just be yourself. You don't have to behave any particular way. You can just be you. And I think for the first year or two, even with, you know, school events where my kids, you know, their teacher events, I would have shied away from going to any of that. You just, you kind of want to lock yourself away from it because mm-hmm. you've had... A number of years of having to deal with that, you know, those conversations about rugby and about what's going on, what's going to happen on the next tour, whether you're involved or not. And you just, you have your fill. And again, I find myself now six, seven years out that I, I look forward to those new conversations of getting myself out of my comfort zone. Actually, this coming Saturday, I've got my, my little fella is in is six years of age. So there's a dad's barbecue from his class. No, like just ads. And, and seven years ago, I'd have gone, you must be kidding me. Not a chance I'm going to that. But I was like, do you know what? Go and have you know, a few drinks and have some food and chat to them and, and different conversations, kind of broadening your horizon a little mm. bit. Um, whereas your psyche, you know, as a professional rugby player, it doesn't encourage you to do that because you, you've had people talk at you for a long period of time and that and there's only so much energy it runs thin emotional yeah energy that you've got as well it's not being antisocial I think is it I don't think it is I don't think it is because I, I quite like talking that stuff mm. with friends and family and people that I know it's just when it's the only level of conversation that you have and it's the only thing that people connect you with they think you're not capable of talking of anything else <laughs> other than rugby so yeah you invariably you know, get the conversation goes that way. And then you try and turn it away to another direction and someone pulls it back in. It's like, no, we turn left here. 
Um, so, you know, I, it's, it's funny. There's a, I can feel a real evolution in the last six or seven years, and there's probably plenty more iterations to come, but I'm really enjoying them at the moment. And having a family, I think, is a big factor, isn't it? Because, Huge. Because, you know, you just can't be so selfish and uh, self-absorbed as a sportsman has to be when you've got children around you. Um, and you you made a new one in lockdown yeah. as well. So yeah. um, that, that's a, that was a, a big, bold move because obviously, you know, I guess when, when you were pregnant, when Amy was pregnant and going through all of that, you didn't really know what was going to happen in the world. And, and did that feel... Did that feel unsettling or was it was it actually reassuring? It was really lovely to have. Do you know, we found out about 10 days after the first lockdown. So we found wow. out in April. And um, so to have that to look forward to while the world was starting to fall apart and everything was shutting down, it was it was kind of it was lovely to have that little secret amongst the two of us for a while and, and kind of have that little glow. And, um, and then, you know, we arrived, um, just after Christmas and it's been so weird, so different than the other kids. Obviously they're a little bit older, they're eight and six, but you know, there's no FOMO going on cause there's nothing been happening for the last six months. <laughs> I've been, I haven't been traveling, so I've been home. I've been able to help out as yeah. much as I possibly can. People haven't been able to call over. So just you, your family getting to enjoy your new arrival, it's, it's quite alien to previous, yeah. previous experiences. So um, it's, been, it's been real fun and, and he's, been, he's been a beauty as well. He's been like, we might have had more than three kids if he'd arrived first. Yeah, but I wonder if he's like that because of all those things you said as well. Because, you know, I think third babies from experience of chatting to friends they always seem to miraculously be really relaxed. And I think, well, is that yeah. a, a reflection of how you are with babies? Probably. As well? Because obviously, and also the other two need attention, don't they? So yeah. you, can't, you can't be just giving that baby 100% no. the whole time. They, like they have to deal with their circumstances yeah. because, yeah. you know, you'd it. alienate the two older kids if you start pouring all your time and effort into, into the third one. But also you get to, I, because mine are old enough, or I should say ours, I don't specifically own them myself, but um, <laughs> because ours are a little bit older, you kind of live this guy vicariously through the others as well and watch their enjoyment and all their firsts. And, you know, listen, babies only do so much. So I can't wait to when he gets, you know, that, that two to five bracket, when I see the yeah. reaction of the other kids seeing yeah. him with all, the, with all the firsts, that's going to be real gold. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like it's been absolute bliss. But I wondered as well because you're 42, right? Yeah, you're 42. So, which is very young, Brian. It's very much at the early early part of this midlife experience. But when I was 32, having my babies, there was a woman about 43 having twins in, under the same specialist, and I remember at 32 thinking, "Gosh, she's old." <laughs> right? Yeah, that's oh, that seems really old. Of course, now that doesn't seem old at all. But energy wise, I remember thinking. How are you going to have the energy? I mean, does, do you feel more tired? Do you kind of, does it, do you notice that? Or is that, is that? Just... Now you sleep less, don't you? Like I, I've, 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 you got used to sleeping less. Yeah, I haven't slept properly for eight years now. Um, so like, <laughs> that's the reality. There's, there's always something to, you know, to worry or concern you when you have kids and, and you learn to like, I'm pretty good on four and a half, five hours sleep. 
I, and I would have been someone that like nine, you know, before, right. before so Sadie arrived. Yourself. So yeah, he, he wakes up at half five most mornings and I'm up and I just, I stay up then. I'll walk the dog at six in the morning, go down to the park. I think I saw an Instagram actually where I think it said 6.22. Yeah. And, and you, and I was, I was thinking, gosh. I must have been laid out the door that day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's, there is like, and, and I quite, I love that. It's because you get, yeah, I can get peace and quiet. Do you know what? I don't even listen to anything. I'm, I occasionally listen you know, to one of your podcasts, but, of um, but I, I, yeah, sometimes you just want to be with my thoughts and I can bring Ted with me. And it feels as though you've kind of had a win by nine o'clock. And I like that feeling, you know, you get a bit of exercise. Yeah. I get my steps up. I've gotten really big into focusing on making sure I do kind of 12 to 15,000 steps a day. And that is guaranteeing me in getting them in before nine. And is that because you know if you do that many steps that you, you don't need to do anything else? Or is that just... No, no, no. No, it's just... That's that's the extra win because I'll, I'll train every day, right. pretty much. Day. I'll train six days a week. Right. Yeah, six days a week. Okay, that, so now we're kind of dipping back into that athlete's regime, aren't we? Because of the rigidity of the time and doing it. You know, that's, that's the mindset that just won't completely close. Well, up. if I don't lock it in... As some a non-negotiable, a it'll, yeah, it will. It can be nudged. I really. And what it's do you so do? Important. What do you do in your in your training? So we'll body parts. You know, usually chest on a Monday, back on a Tuesday, legs on so a Wednesday. All yeah, all weights. But then we then we do a, an assault bike at the end of our session for six minutes. Six minutes on an assault bike. Yeah. No, no, no just we're just doing um, doing calories. Intervals. Doing a, yeah, doing oh. eleven or twelve oh. calories. Um, right. So um, that's just a finisher. But but what we've been brought in as well is in between, then we do a run. There's a 450 meter run. So just right. to get four of them in. So all of a sudden you've got 1800 meters. That's pretty lung busting. Yeah. yeah. I, do you know what? I hated running. I've always hated running. And like that, that no, no stoppage, like the long distance stuff. I hated it. And now I know how good it is for you in your head too, if you're able to push the boat out, push the boundaries and, and squeeze yourself a little bit. And I, and, and I do miss that part. And I've kind of, it's reemerged in the last few months more so that I, it's a real necessity. Mm, and what it does for your mind as well. But it also, do you know what it does? It feeds the rest of my positive life, like mm. drink less, eat better, um, sleep better. Yeah. In better form, feel better, you know, more self confidence I just think it has a vir- it's a virtuous circle and does does Amy notice you as a better person when you're in this kind of regime I think she knows she's like go and train with you <laughs> um and also because as you get older and this is relevant to the midlife thing what I'm putting in my engine is bearing more and more fruit if you like with what I'm p- yeah. putting in the gym so where you could get away with it in your 20s not eating as well and exercising here's a question did you overindulge from an alcohol point of view then in any of the lockdowns did you like in Ireland it gave us license to, to drink <laughs> on like Mondays and Tuesdays right the lockdown one and like the, the going to the bottle bank would, became a far more regular thing and it was like it was the walk of shame and so I look back at that time I was like, oh my God, we were a shambles. It was, it was, it was this just, it was, we were, we were pregnant. When I was like a, pregnant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, no, well, like, just I, I was, I was, so trust me, I was able to drink for, for the both of us. <laughs> well, to be honest, at the very beginning, yes, yeah, so I say the first couple of weeks. And then I said to Kenny, 
do you know what? We don't know how long this is going on for. I think we should try and get the kind of no drinking on a school night rule, you know, yeah. back in. So yeah. Monday and Tuesday, we'd set off with great intentions. And then it would get to, and the, of course, the weeks were so long without any kind of junctions, weren't they? With, with no, mm. there were no um, kind of ways of determining whether it was Saturday or not anyway, because <laughs> there was no sport yeah. at the weekends, you know? So, um, so we get to a Wednesday night and kind of go, little gin and tonic like it's only Wednesday and you go it's practically the weekend (laughs) (laughs) and so the weekends were kind of coming in a little bit and then Sunday lunches you know why are we having a boozy Sunday lunch it's just us (laughs) just the two of us but um but I think you know as long as you know that you can kind of get yourself back into a routine that doesn't involve that then it's healthy I think it's the worry is for people when that just becomes the norm yeah yeah every day is you know yeah I'm going to bring our expert in today who is Dr Peter Herbert fantastic to have you on today how are you I'm good thank you Dr Peter the reason that I was so desperate to get you on here was because I read a very interesting article in the Times and the headline was one of those great headlines that kind of draws you in and, you know, being a little bit vain, uh, it says exercise can age proof your body. That was the headline. I thought, right, I'm all in here. And it was basically about the research that you've done into exercise, especially midlifers and the amount of intensity of exercise that kind of is needed to to keep yourself cardiovascularly the same age or even reverse your aging process. So, and also we should just say for Brian's interests, Peter, you were the fitness coach for Wales from 92 to 94 and 2000 to 2002. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Dr. Peter, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, Brian. Okay. I must know a lot of people that I know. (laughs) I'm sure. And I tell you, this is the most Celtic episode we've done yet, which is wonderful. So, Dr. Peter, tell me why you set out to to try and prove this or what were you looking to find out? Well, look, the evidence is indisputable showing how effective HIIT training or high intensity interval training is in improving our aerobic capacity, which is also known as VO2 max. Well, many don't realise that this measure that almost all top sportsmen and women in the world would have had at some point in their careers is also regarded as the gold standard assessment of health. Now, in 2012, I conducted a study to investigate the effects of HIIT training on the VO2 max of 39 fit and unfit men aged between 55 and 76. So even older than us. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, hey, older than you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well played, Dr. Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Not as old as me, I should say. They followed a six-week programme of six times 30-second sprints on an exercise bike with three minutes recovery between each sprint. Right. This was performed once every five days, so it's it's quite infrequent. They didn't do anything in between. And we found there was extremely significant increases in their VO2 max with all the participants. So you thought you would find this, did you? This is what your hunch was, that a small amount of training like that could have a huge impact. I did. And uh, because of the intensity, the big key of improving fitness is intensity you know you can talk about duration frequency and so on and so forth but if you haven't got intensity you are really not going to make the gains you want to you have to raise your heart rate within these sessions and your age range started at 55 when people are in this period of life if they've got off the routine of exercise when is it too late to make that difference or is is starting at all while you've still got a beating heart better than not starting you know it just do it basically is that the message yeah, I work with men and women up to about 85 years of age. Wow. And it's possible at that time to see increases in strength mm-hmm. and improvements in aerobic fitness, which is going to give them a much, much better quality of life. How old are you? 
Dr. Peter? Uh, 76. And what are you doing still for your exercise? I do some hit maybe once a week. I weight train once a week and the rest is playtime. <laughs> we live on the coast don't you? so it's surfing and kayaking and cycling and swimming and so on Brilliant. almost daily. Dr. Peter, what about the nervousness around you know some some older people with the the added health concerns of medical issues that might be more relevant to people in their 50s, 60s and 70s if they're starting out again? Well, the first thing I would say is they need obviously need to get checked checked out with their with their GP. Okay. All the people that came on this study were what we regard as generally healthy. I think the only condition that we allowed in was controlled hypertension, controlled blood pressure. What about lifestyle factors as well? So how much alcohol were they drinking? You know, did they smoke? Were they allowed to have kind of vices as well? Oh, yeah, <laughs> lots of it. <laughs> so half of them were master's athletes, very, very fit men. Right. So they already had high standards, good levels. So it was more difficult to actually get increases in their VO2 max. The other group were totally sedentary. They hadn't exercised for maybe 25, 30 years Many of them smoked, many of them drunk too much. See, I just interrupted you there. Those are the ones that I'm really interested in because it's so important for them to know it is not too late. And even with their lifestyles, they can get these gains that you're talking about. Well, we, we, yeah, we, we absolutely showed that on this study. I, I mean, it really is about convincing people, sedentary people particularly. If they can raise their VO2 max by doing certain exercise they decrease this risk of morbidity. They lower the, the chances of, of getting diabetes. They lower the chances of getting cardiac problems. Cholesterol levels are lower. So the benefits are enormous. If they were really serious about this, they can start to do things and get back to their childhood a little bit and really enjoy those things that their children and their grandchildren do. Yeah, it's fantastic. And you are living proof, obviously, of that with your uh, kite surfing, your surfing and everything else that you're doing into your 70s. Give three tips, if you will, for um, the midpointers listening today. First of all, I would say that they need to include aerobic and strength as part of their exercise routines. Aerobic work could be uh, walking, jogging, running, swimming, etc. Resistance training could be weights if you go to, if they went to the gym or it could be lifting shopping bags and they're in the house. But making making sure there's something in the shopping bag before they do their <laughs> lifting with them and so on. Secondly, they use an activity they enjoy. Mm-hmm. Exercising outdoors can be particularly beneficial, especially if you live in the country. You've got to enjoy it. Near a park. Yeah. And finally, slowly to start with just a few minutes, gradually increasing the time they're exercising, possibly speeding up a little bit later on. But what we do know is, is that even light exercise is better than no exercise at all. Thank you so much. And and you know what I love about not just what you've written and the research, you're in your 70s and you're doing that research as well. So that's, for me, is just brilliant because that is what we want to see is that, you know, we're all in this period of life thinking, where are we going? What are we doing? Well, you know, in 30 years time, you could be writing a report like Dr. Peter if you're in your 40s now. So. <laughs> I'm a late, late developer. <laughs> I think you've already got a bit on your CV. Have a great day. Thank you Thanks, very much. Dr. Okay, Peter. thank you. Good to see you, Brian. Okay. Bye, likewise. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Can we talk about politics and sport? Because when you when you are immersed in sport, it just kind of occurred to me the other day watching, you know, the debates that are still ongoing about taking the knee and things. When you're immersed in sport, often you're swept along with 
what you're being told to do, or you're having to kind of almost not have your own thought process on things because very few people feel that they can speak out and certainly didn't in the past. But and yet sport and politics have been entrenched for, for, you know, forever. You know, you go back to whether it's the Munich Olympics and terrorist attacks or whether it's boycotting of Olympic Games. You know, anybody who says sport and politics shouldn't mix is, is naive, really, because they've forever yeah. been used in that way. And you did a brilliant documentary about... Um, rugby union and its relationship kind of in Ireland over 50 years of the Troubles and and very much got yourself kind of entrenched in, in that sport and, and politics kind of area. And I wonder at that point in your life, kind of, you know, what that did for your mindset or how you, you know, what thoughts you came to and how that has changed your attitude maybe towards what sportsmen have a, a responsibility to do when they're in their careers. Well, I think what that did for me was I, I would always like to have thought that I was an inclusive sort of person from, you, you know, the upbringing uh, that I had from my parents. It, uh, you know, it's funny, you talk about diversity and equality. Like my mom was a GP with, in practice with my dad. All I knew was she went out and worked the same mm-hmm. way. And we saw her. Yeah, of course we did. And she she kind of tried to hedge her bets. And my dad worked more than her. But that's all I knew. You were so, brought up by a working mum, basically. Yeah, by a working mum, yeah. So, so when you see that, I suppose it shapes mm-hmm. your the landscape for you for years to come. And then when you know, with regard to Ireland and Northern Ireland and the players from Ulster, I, I never, th- I never saw them as different when I was playing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, we were all trying to play for the same purpose. And these players in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, the sacrifices they had to make, and some of them almost gave up their lives to go and play for Ireland in, you know, in, in car bombs and so on. So, and, and the Belfast attacks in 72. So hearing from the likes of Willie John McBride, you know, who's the bank manager back then, you know, coming out of the bank and not knowing which way to run. And yet they were still wanting to go down to Dublin to training sessions when there were threats against lies, when they had special branch sleeping outside their rooms in, in the hotel in Dublin. Mm. This was really eye-opening for me. And I guess what it did do for me, it gave me an, a greater understanding of the need for acceptance. If someone's homophobic, I, I won't want to know them. But if someone wants to be considered to be Irish, Northern Irish and British all in the one, well, that's their prerogative and good luck to them. Provided they're not causing any harm, mm-hmm. let people be themselves and, and have their own opinions and, and do what works for them. Do you think, having kind of gone through that learning experience, how far does sport or should sport go in a way that it influences that social change? I think it can, and I think it should. I I think if it's people's prerogative to take the knee, let them. If there's others that don't want it, that's fine too. But I don't understand. I just don't understand the booing. I really don't get it. Like, it's people are are passionate about something you, you don't have, they don't have to be kept in isolation. They're intrinsically linked politics and sport, whether you like it or not. Did you, through doing that documentary and through your, you know, you're a very well-educated man, you, as you said, you both, your parents were doctors. Did you then think, I've, I've got to use my voice more. I have this, I have this power to, to help facilitate change. Do you know what? I'm not afraid to, I'm not afraid to put a nose out of joint or, or split opinion. But not for the sake of it, but if you stand by a value around something, I think it's important to nail your colours to that mast, even if it's, it's unpopular in, in 
doing the documentary, I went up and played the lambeg drum, which is a symbol for orange men and something in the South that would be incredibly frowned upon. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a symbol that's not associated with any level of positivity. But for the sake of the documentary, I got asked to play it. I had that split second decision as to whether I should do it or not. And I went with my gut and I went and did it. And and with social media, you know, there's 30 iPhones, you know, stuck in front of you playing the drum and it's out in social media in seconds. And and then all of a sudden I'm getting hammered and I'm getting threats and, you know, threats of being beaten up and so on. And this was this was before the documentary was even out. This was all this was all the day of the documentary wow. and on the July 12th at the, right. at the Orange Order. Obviously, it's not nice having that level of abuse thrown your direction. But ultimately, behind it all, I was proud of what I did because I knew it was the right thing to do for the sake of the documentary. Mm-hmm. Would I play a lambeg drum a second time? Probably not, to be honest with you. But it's, I was glad I did it because, yeah, trying to understand how we all pull together for for you know, one specific thing was, there was a process involved well, it's, in it. it's kind of like walking a mile in somebody's shoes, isn't it? Banging that drum in terms of understanding a little bit more about those people that you potentially would never have very much to do with. And, yeah. and so, so I think, you know, it is important in terms of the credibility of a documentary like that. And no one would have been any the wiser if I'd gone, no, to be honest with you, mm. that's not for me. That might've been fine, but I would have known. Mm. And that wouldn't have sat well with me that I would have taken the easy option. That's what it was. It, was ta- it would have been taking an easy option where I could have saved myself a load of flack. I still get abuse every so often on social media going, shut up and play your drum, will you? <laughs> you know, when, anytime I say anything, you know, oh, quiet, quiet and down, drummer boy, or whatever. But, so you know... When I see that, I'll understand more what that means. Eh? There's some responses <laughs> coming on Twitter. Or just the emoji of a set of drums. That's one of my favourites. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit, before we finish today, if we can, about relationships in, in midlife, right? Because you're, you're kind of like almost living an early 30 person's life, young kids running around. And so so I think there's almost not time to think sometimes about your yeah. relationship when your kids are little. Yeah, it's really hard during this period as well. I had a conversation the other day with uh, two of my wife's friends who were over for a takeaway and we were chatting and one of them mentioned about how just before she got married, her dad said, the really important thing that's going to keep your relationship together is the the two of you continuing having your own individual relationship with your friend and so on. Don't become just a unit together. You've got to have, mm. keep it separate too. And she said that's really fueled her over her, you know, whatever, 10 years of marriage. Mm. But during the pandemic, she noticed that her husband has kind of became a bit insular, became a bit more, you know, self-contained. And I think that is the, the, there's a danger of that in the male population because I'm a little bit like that as well. I live the other side of the city than a lot of my friends that I grew up with. And I, and I talk to them, but I, I've seen hardly any of them in the last six months, partly because, you know, we're not meant, you know, we're told not to travel you know, beyond 5k. I've got young kids. I've been busy with other things, but also a little bit of, you get into this comfort zone of, ah, we'll be fine. We'll pick up now in a while. And mm. so you do have to constantly work on relationships and, and, Get out of even get out of the comfort zone of 
meeting up and going for a walk. I, I met with Dennis Hickey, an old teammate of mine and another old teammate for a walk the other day. It's kind of weird seeing three grown men walking down the street <laughs> going for a 45 minute walk, taking up the whole pathway, you know? <laughs> but, but it was lovely to get out and just catch up with one another because all well and good chatting on the phone, but you don't have that interaction and you don't get the real, really interesting stuff. Mm. You know, you tend not and to... And stuff that maybe is a bit more personal. Body language, you know, mm. and, and a look and then you can, you, you know, like a good interviewer being able to see someone's awkwardness and then asking a, a kind of a supportive second question and so mm-hmm. on. So th- these things are really, really important. And it, 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 it has, this pandemic has definitely lent itself to sitting on our laurels a little bit. I, I do feel as though the world will need to give itself a bit of a push when we get going again. Yeah, I mean, there's been, in terms of uh, divorces and relationships breaking up as well. I mean, mm. I, in the, after the first kind of lockdown in the UK, which was summertime, it was opening up, two or three divorces were announced kind of in our, you know, not immediate circle, but, you know, beyond our immediate circle. And I'm sure those relationships have been under a lot of strain before and it obviously exacerbated those things. And then there were the friends who said, gosh, we've just got on better than ever. But Mm. then you wonder like that kind of tightness that, you know, you close in almost and close ranks. You kind of think you've got to get back out there at some point as well and and get into the world and have those relationships. I think whether your relationship has survived in a beautiful sense and become better than ever or whether or not it's exacerbated the, the, the flaws if you like in it I still think that it's changed people's relationships forever in many ways or how you view them yeah I would say it has I, I you know I, I we look back and and I think we've we've pandemic quite well you know I think we've been pretty <laughs> it's been in many ways it's been really good for us as a collective and um, we've had our kids have been the perfect age to be able to manage this other than some torturous homeschooling that everyone's oh, yeah, been yeah. through besides that you know, I look at uh, people that have, you know, teenage kids or early college kids like that is a really tough existence mm. for them during this last 18 months. So thankfully, you know, 10 years on, we're, st- we, we're still good pals, myself and my wife, and we get on well and we have a laugh and, you know, we enjoy one another's company. I, but I think you still have to try and make an effort mm. and organizing dinner just you guys, you know, rather mm. than just always as a collective. Yeah, as lovely as it is eating with your family a lot, which I really insist on. And I, I think it's a time, especially with teenagers, it's where you get stuff. It's where you get information that can yeah. come out, you know. Um, yeah, you have to, you have to. Have, but it's interesting what you said at the beginning, because I do think for men as well in the midlife, that's so, it, male friendships are so important. And so they, they then feed back into the relationship. I know, you know, when Kenny's had a good hour on the phone or he's gone for a walk with one of his mates, he, he just, he's got stuff off his chest that it's not that he wouldn't tell me, but it's just different stuff, yeah. you know, that he, he wouldn't necessarily. So I think it's probably underrated, actually, the male, the male friendship as a, as a support tool almost to the, to the, the family. And I think but the, the, the issue is that, that sometimes we can kick into where we left off, which isn't a good thing, you know? It's not like that, that friendship can be paused for six months or a year and then you can just go, ah, sure, we haven't seen each other, and then you're back into it. But to, but what you don't realize in that period of time, exactly your point is the the good stuff that it actually feeds in the rest of your life. Yeah. And then obviously the conversation, you know, if you're if you're only going every three or six months, you don't get into any real deep and meaningful. It's oh, it's quite peripheral, the conversation. Mm. You've got to build that trust level back up again to kind of open your heart a bit and and, and let people know the, the good, bad and indifferent. So. It's definitely something that I have to be conscious of because I, I'm very happy in my own company. 
and I, I'm not someone that has a million friends and never was. I, I always had a core group of friends, mm-hmm. even though I'm looking forward to the dads of my son's barbecue <laughs> on Saturday. And maybe oh, who knows what new friendships I'm going to have exactly. on Sunday what morning. Long lasting friendships. Might have. And just, just finally on your, on your successful marriage in terms of the screen, you know, you, Amy has a very successful career as an actress and she has a, a public life away from you. And then you have the, you know, Brian and Amy together as well. Um, in terms of clearly what you said about growing up with a working mum, you know, that you, you went into this marriage knowing there was going to be a juggle. You know, yeah. there was going to be, there was going to be, sometimes it's your priority, sometimes yeah. it's mine. And, and that is also, I think, one of the, the kind of foundations, isn't it, for a public couple like yourselves to have any chance of success. And particularly when the rugby went, you know, I think like you talk about the selfishness of being an athlete and, you know, I think there was, you probably took the edge off the selfishness when I got married and when Sadie arrived and that was in the last year or two. But then when you retire and, and then it's her time to shine, you know, you've got to you've got to row back. And and sometimes you wish you could be totally selfish in just your career and your focus. But that's not for the two deal. two ambitious people. <laughs> You just have to muck muck in collectively and you have to do more than is expected of you. And that goes from both of our points of view. And she's very funny, Amy, as well. I I always think it's a mark of a man's strength, actually, if he's with a funny woman, because I think a lot of men still not quite sure they could be with somebody who might be funnier than them. I'm not saying she is. No, she, she's definitely funnier than me. I get, I, I get like, it's funny. Anytime on this funny social media, it's, you know, you roll your eyes, but anytime I come out with anything half decent, I'll get a, like a handful of people going hilarious gag, Amy. Like is Amy sitting beside <laughs> As if she's you? written all your material. Yeah, I was like, what? I can't even, I can't even, I'm not capable of coming up with something myself, but she is a very funny person. And um, but that's, you know, what? that's a really, for me, that's a really important part of, of, of a relationship is having laughs. Mm. And we, and I'm lucky that I do have lots of laughs with her and we're very different in many ways as well. We really are. We, we, you know, she's such a creative brain and I don't have really any of that, but I'm, I'm more of a, a functional person. Our, so so but, you bring your functionality to the relationship. Yeah, well, well, you know, <laughs> but I, I, I think I Come think on, we kind of, I think we I think we dovetail well. I think we yeah. dovetail well that we um, we bring we do bring different skill sets to to kind of the whole as as a family. Well, it's it's certainly at the moment it seems to be working very well indeed, and um, I think uh, you're a you're a good example for a lot of people. I think in terms of obviously your experience was extreme that transition from sports god to you know to mere mortal kind of trying to live life through a different in different plane is you know is tough. But a lot of people are going through those kinds of changes in their life and midlife. So thank you for sharing all of your experiences, Brian, and um, have a great time at the barbecue. I feel there could be a, a wonderful male friendship about to to be launched there over the uh, burgers and the lamb chops. I'm, cer- I'm certainly hoping he's got a, he's got a smoker so he's been on already I'm into in smoking meat yeah. so um so he's been on and I was like I can't wait for the 10 hour brisket so I put it to him he better he better deliver <laughs> well best of uh, luck for the rest of the the year and all the all the work you got to do and thanks uh, Gabby. Take cheers care. Great to have a good barbecue all right bye. cheers bye bye bye, bye. bye. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed Brian's chat as well as his mellifluous Irish tones. I think he's so interesting on how his life has changed and how he's adapted from that high-octane sportsman's world, which was dripping in trophies and adoration to, here, love, put the bins out. Not quite, but you get the picture. A lot of sportsmen and women struggle with it, so maybe he's resonated with you when it comes to change and adaptation. Thank you as well to Dr Peter Herbert, whose message is clear. It is never too late to start a fit and sporty life. Uh, To Solgar for sponsoring. And if you've had a sporty life yourself and you find your joints aren't quite what they were, you might want to try their glucosamine chondrotin, which is designed for joint and cartilage support from the range of over 300 minerals and vitamins, all encased in their very smart brown glass bottles with the gold lids. Thank you to Lauren Armstrong Carter and Rethink Audio for producing and to you for listening. Until next time, bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 